Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into the Buster Show podcast. Today, we have Brian Lee on the show. Brian, thank you so much for being on. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Buster. Excited well, to be here. We've got so many things to talk about. You have one of the most insane resumes that I have ever seen in my life. Uh, but I want to start with a mutual passion of ours, collectibles. How did you get into collectibles? And obviously, you're a savvy business guy. You started businesses uh, that you saw long-term potential in. What was the thing that convinced you that collectibles and sports cards specifically were here to stay and grow? Well, I've always um, collected ever since I was a kid. Uh, I started collecting baseball cards when I was about seven to eight years old, like many of us. Uh, my dad took me to my first Dodger game. Uh, and I fell in love with the sport. I fell in love with Steve Garvey, our first baseman at the time. And I remember, you know, the next day I rode my bicycle to the, the local comic and card shop in Fountain Valley, California. And I bought a uh, Steve Garvey rookie card. Um, I still have it today, by the way. Oh, um, yeah, I got it graded. It graded a two, so I didn't really take care of it very well. But regardless, it was a, that, that's what got me hooked. Um, and I've been collecting ever since. Like most of my friends stopped you know, junior high school, high school, whatever. I, I just kept going. Um, I would go to card shops and card shows. Anytime I traveled to a new city, I would actually try to stop by their local card shops. Um, so I've always been into it. And in terms of, you know, creating a business out of it, um, I just, I honestly, I love this industry. I love the hobby. Um, I've had so many years of enjoyment. I, my son started collecting with me when he was about seven, eight years old as well. And so we would spend weekends going to shows and shops and so forth. Um, but I just wanted to make it better, truthfully. I, I was getting a little frustrated with what was out there and what was happening. And, you know, it was, uh, I don't know, I mean, many of us have had those frustrations. And whether it be sending cards to get graded and getting cards back that uh, you thought should have scored higher, or sometimes they score, you know, higher than what you thought. So so it was just kind of all over the place on that side. And then on the marketplace side, I was getting a little frustrated with, you know, non-shipments, non-payments, shield bidding, trimming, fraud, you know, the, the whole thing. Yep. You know, and I thought I could make that better uh, in terms of marketplace. And so that, that was the genesis really of Arena Club. Uh, we launched about a year or so ago. Um, and it's been a lot of fun. I, I can't believe how much fun I'm having actually. I feel like I feel like that that seven year old kid again, uh, biking to the card shop. But um, it's a it's just been a joy to to be part of this and to, to assemble such a great team to to help us grow this. Love it. Now now on the business side of it, uh, what's the most surprising thing that you've since learned about the hobby that you didn't know before starting a business? In you know, there's there's a lot of things that I've kind of learned. Um, number one is the velocity. And how quickly the market changes for 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 players. I mean, a player could could have a have an amazing season, have one really really bad game, and then you see the the effects on their their cards. And it's um, yeah. I I never realized it was almost real time, you know, in terms of the fluctuations on prices of players. And now that I know that, I remember when certain news came out about a certain player being suspended for a certain amount of games. Uh, in the NBA, I, I remember going to my desk and trying to sell those cards as fast as possible. Um, yeah, it was just, you know, it's just one of those things. It's like I, I kind of learned how fast these things move. Uh, but uh, but it's still fun. It's, it's still a lot of fun to pay attention to all of it. 
Love it. Now you, you have some great partners on this business, Derek Jeter being one of them. Yeah. The Yankees, great. I grew up in the city, grew up, you know, with Derek Jeter has been the shortstop for more of my life than he has not been. Uh, so that's a crazy fact there. Uh, wow. how, how did that relationship come about and what sort of his, uh, stance on cards and collectibles? Yeah. So Derek is a wonderful, wonderful partner. Well, number one, he's a wonderful human being. Um, and I just love working with him. Uh, he was, he's always been into collectibles, mostly uh, memorabilia, sports memorabilia. He lost a lot of his cards uh, when he was younger uh, to a flood in his parents' basement. Yeah. So that was kind of a heartbreaking situation. Um, but he's kind of gotten back into it, you know. And so I met him years and years ago, I think it was some charity event. Um, and we just sort of hit it off and I really liked him. And he said, if you ever do anything in sports, you know, let me know. And I always had that in the back of my head. Like if I ever started something in the sports category to, to reach out to him. So I did uh, share the idea of arena club and the vision for it. And he got it right away. And he's just like, I'm in, let's, let's go do this. And so, you know, he's been part of the journey since we started. Um, and Jesse glass is my co-founder here. He was with me at my other companies. And so the three of us kind of co-founded this company together. Yeah, Jesse's awesome. I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. Oh, good. Awesome, uh, good. He's phenomenal energy as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, that that's really cool. Do you know if Derek has any like uh, incredible memorabilia that you were surprised he owned? Well, he keeps a lot of his 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 memorabilia from like you know his hundredth home run or or whatever, oh. like all those kind of things. Yeah, or the, the, yeah the glove the glove that he used in uh, one of his winning game you know it's like all that kind of stuff he keeps that's, it that's smart most players don't do that <laughs> yeah <laughs> very sharp now uh a question when you have uh you know celebrities or uh, famous people involved on a, a partner level or a founder level you've done this before uh with, with the honest company but in in this case as well how do you know how to what to expect from a celebrity partner in something like this? Is that something that you just figure out as you go along? Or how do you sort of figure those things out before you get into business with someone like that? Well, it's, it's truly more about, you know, relatability and authenticity um, and whether or not that celebrity or influencer uh, brings that to the table. And in terms of someone like a Derek Jeter, I mean, he's beloved, right? He's just a beloved player. Um, it doesn't matter if you're a Yankee or a Red Sox fan, honestly, you're going to respect Derek Jeter, right? Everyone in LA, even though we're, I'm a Dodger fan and I didn't want to play against Derek Jeter or I didn't want the Dodgers to play against, but, but, you know, you respect him, right? And, and, and that's the thing. It's like, so like a Derek Jeter brings so much credibility to what you're doing and what you're building. Um, you know, and he's just brought a lot of excitement to the sport. We brought him out to the nationals, uh, this past summer and it was, it was pretty fun. Right. It was like uh, pretty amazing to see how many people churned up uh, to meet him uh, at the Nationals. And he he had a ball. He really did. He um, he was really blown away at how large the industry is, you know, especially with something like the Nationals, where it's like, um, yeah, I mean, you could get lost in there. Right. So it's um, yeah, he, he was pretty amazed. That's that's really cool. What do you think the uh, the hobby looks like in 10 years? Like when you. You know, when, when you really think about it far out is is the you know obviously there's a lot of 
new news and newness with fanatics coming into the space and Panini's, you know, role in the space and other new companies coming out. What do, what do you think the hobby looks like in, in a decade? I think it continues to grow. I think it continues to grow. And I, I think uh, there'll be more companies like Arena Club that will innovate in this space. I think a lot of the companies that have existed for, you know, many, many years, you know, are a little, a little behind, truthfully, when it comes to technology and the use of technology. So I think you're going to see more and more kind of innovative tech companies coming into this space. And I, you're already kind of seeing it uh, with some. Uh, I think, look, I don't, I don't, I think breaking is here to stay. I really do. I think um, there's, it's just so much fun, you know, going on to a break and seeing what you get and so forth. And I think that's going to continue for, for, for a while, but what makes me happiest and, you know, gives me the confidence that this hobby is here to stay and will continue to grow is every time I go to a card show, I just kind of look around to see how many kids are running around and I see more and more kids. Right. And, 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 that just tells me the future of this hobby is strong. It's 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 here to stay and will continue for the next generation. Yeah, it's a great indicator. No, that's that's really cool. I saw that at the national as well. I'm yeah, huge kids, and I I just want there to be more great card shows. I think that would only, you know, further that growth around the country too. Like there there should be three yeah. nationals a year, and there should be one in the East Coast, one in the middle, and 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 one on the West Coast. You know, the the yeah. West Coast most underserved when it comes to like really big card shows and around yeah. the world too right this this should, should yeah. be a global although although the Burbank card show is is turning out to be really stellar i'm not sure if you've made it out yet but uh yeah i have I, I, went to, I think the first one uh yeah they, yeah. they did a great job yeah yeah so this it's a pretty good show. i mean it's not the nationals of course but you know they do a really really good job so i'm happy for uh for rob over there yeah yeah they, they've done a really cool job uh, I want to talk about repacks quickly because yeah. I, I said this to you before we hopped on the value proposition, I think in traditional boxes is pretty far off at this point, you know, back in the day in, you know, when I first got into cards in probably 2012, 2013, uh, the best boxes were, you know, I mean, great boxes you could get for a hundred dollars and you would get multiple autographs, you'd get multiple game worn patch cards. And it almost feels like uh, both it's gotten more expensive and you've gotten less out of it, which is such a confusing dynamic because now you can't get a hobby box for under $500 and you're yeah. pulling a card with a jersey that wasn't even seen by the player. Whereas with repacks, and people like to clown on them, but my perspective is on this, and I'm, I'm curious yours, is that the percentage return on, on happiness coolness and value is a factor of five plus higher than the average, you know, ROI on a card box. Yeah. I mean, look, we launched slab packs, uh, last week, uh, too much fanfare. And, you know, I think most, the vast, vast bulk of folks were extremely happy with, with the value that we put in there, with the transparency that we're providing. Um, and how fun it is, truthfully, to, to rip these cards open online and have them show up into your online showroom and you can buy, sell, and trade with each other. You can call the cards back and we'll mail them to you physically. Um, so it's just a lot of fun. But the reason we did it was because Arena Club is truly on a mission, right? Arena Club, we're trying to build what we call a digital card show. 
And anything you can do at a physical card show, you, we want you to be able to do here, right? So whether that be, you know, like on-site grading or buying and selling and trading cards because you have a little booth in front of you at a physical card show online at Arena Club, you get a, a showroom, right? And you can buy, sell, and trade with each other very, very quickly. Um, then also like mystery packs or slab packs, if you, we call them slab packs, um, you could buy those at card shows, right? We're going to have meet and greet with, you know, our athletes coming soon, right? So that's something that, you know, I haven't really talked about much, but um, it's something that's coming. Uh, and so we want to, we want a card show experience, right? Online at Arena Club. And so that's what we're trying to build. In terms of slab packs, though, the reason we did it, um, it was really more about transparency and, and doing right by the community. Because again, I, I'm I'm a collector. I, I I love the industry. I buy mystery packs all the time, right? And I literally bought a three hundred dollar mystery pack and got a fifteen dollar card out of it. <laughs> and honestly, I was like, "What the?" Right? It's like, what what's going on here? Like, what is going on? Yeah, and I'm like, Dude, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what what? And then and, and then I was walking around a show, and one of these one of these dealers was telling me. I, I, he was kind of bragging to me that he has like 90% margin on his mystery packs. And I'm like, dude, the only way you're getting 90% margin is putting one cent cards into these packs. It's like, Seriously. what are you doing? And the thing is, I mean, you can fool people one time. Yeah, you but there can't you can't fool repeat yeah. customers. Yeah, you know yeah, that. You, like, it's like literally, it's a, it's, a, it's a grab for cash for a lot of these folks. And I just felt like we could do better. We could do better. We could be transparent. So, at Arena Club with the slab packs, we show you every card that you could possibly get and the and the ratios, the hit ratios for each card, right? And if you hit those cards, they disappear from you know the list into your showroom, right? And then get replenished with equally valued cards. And so it's a constant kind of replenishment system going forward as well. Um, and so it's, it's just very different because again, we're bringing that layer of transparency we're bringing, I think, unmatched value because we're not in this for purely, you know, the profit and the margin. We're, we're out there to create as much fun as we can with as much transparency as we can. That's the number one goal. Yeah, eventually we'd like to make money from it. But right now the goal is let's, let's, let's just do right by the community. Yeah, and I can imagine with a lot of those people you were mentioning with 90% margins, their churn is 100%. Yeah, exactly. It's not a single person. Exactly. That's, you, know, you can fool somebody once, but you can't. The hobby is smart. You cannot yeah. fool people twice. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. What um what what are sort of the key indicators that uh, you look for when you think about getting involved in a company or investing in a company? What are those things that you look for in every single company? You know. For companies that I start, um, I look for, you know, industries that can be disrupted, right? That that you could really innovate upon and bring something new to an existing industry, uh, and bring excitement to it, and to and the opportunity to truly build a brand and a brand name. Um, so I look at I look at this industry, uh, the sports card industry especially. Um, I look, there, 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 there are a lot of players, right? There's a lot of players in this category. 
but there's very, very few that people actually know outside of the hobby. So if you're not a collector, honestly, you haven't heard of 98% of these companies that, that we all know, Buster, right? Sure. But if not, but yet 60% of men born in America have cards somewhere. They have them in the shoebox, under their bed, in their attic, their basement, their parents' house, you know, somewhere. And so these are all folks that we should bring back into the hobby, right? They, they're, they're missing out, man. They're, they're, they're missing out on the fun that they, they used to have when they were kids. And I want to bring that back to them. But the only way you do that is by building a, a business that goes beyond this hobby as it stands today. Mm. So 60%, that would be almost 100 million people. That's right. That's right. No, actually, maybe about 80 million people. Because you have to imagine some are, some are, you know, kids and some are, you know, the population is about 300, a little north of 300 million, half of that, male, female. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you get it. There's a lot. <laughs> well, well, it's a, well the, the point I'm making is it's a lot more people that are in the hobby now by oh, a, yeah, like, absolutely. a significant margin. Yeah, exactly. What do, what do you think would bring those 70 million people in? Building a brand. Building a brand. So I did the same thing when I started um, when I started LegalZoom.com uh, with a friend of mine and with a couple of friends of mine. And we started it because we saw how large the legal industry was, but yet there is no brand name in law. There are some you know, large law firms that business people have heard of or, or like uh, local personal injury lawyers, but no national brand name. Um, and so we've always felt like if you built that brand name in law, like the only name that people know, LegalZoom, right? Then, then it's worth something, right? And so that's what we set out to do when we started building. And look, to build a brand, it takes time, right? It takes, it takes a few things. It takes time, it takes money, and it takes extreme consistency in your promise, right? So if you deliver upon what you promise over time consistently, you will build a brand that resonates with people that people trust, that people could rely on. The re I mean, there is very business at the at its core is very simple, right? It, you just have to you just have to deliver what you promise, right? So, for example, the reason the reason why McDonald's is McDonald's is because a Big Mac in L.A. tastes just like the Big Mac I get in Miami, right? It's extreme consistency, and it's the promise of delivery of of that same. Big Mac anywhere you go in the world, right? And that's why it's McDonald's. Yeah, delivering and, and over delivering have good, uh, good, good, you know, effects when they compound. You do it over a long period of time. I I did hear I read uh, before this that you is it true that you bootstrapped LegalZoom? Oh yeah, yeah. We started so, with nothing. How does that happen? It's so foreign to today's startups because. You know, anybody in their mom starts a company today and they're like, oh, I need to raise $10 million because that's what everybody does. But do you think mm -hmm. that more companies should bootstrap today or, you know? Look, if, I mean, look, if you don't need to take venture capital money, you probably shouldn't. You know, if you could build it on your own profits and kind of build it over time, you're probably better off in the long run. Right. It, it, it's... Yeah, I, I say take venture capital if if you have a real clear path 
to profitability and to building something very, very large quicker, right? Than what it would take to bootstrap something. But at the same time, you're also kind of beholden to the venture capitalists at that point too. So if you're going to take in capital, you know, you're not necessarily just your own boss anymore, right? You have people to answer to. And so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a balancing thing. It's a, it's, it's a give and take. So sometimes you can bootstrap, sometimes you can raise venture capital. It all depends on the, on the situation, the context. Sure. For LegalZoom, was the goal to bootstrap from the beginning or is that just something that no, you're- we just Yeah, we, we, we could have raised money. <laughs> Oh. We sucked at it. Yeah, we. I mean, we went to probably forty or fifty venture capital firms, and they all said no. Every single one of them rejected us. Yeah, they regretted that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's um, it was one of those things where like, well, how much do you really believe in this idea? And me and my partners really believed in it, and so we're like, we're just going to do it anyway. You know, and we got we got lucky. Truthfully, we got lucky over time. We were very early uh, when it came to online advertising. Uh, we were one of the earliest advertisers for search engine marketing when, when it first started. So the first company was here, based here in LA, called GoTo, G-O-T-O, GoTo, and that was really the backbone for paid marketing, paid search marketing. Um, and so we grew with that category and kind of built a moat around you know what we we're doing, and then started going into radio and television and everything else eventually. But yeah, we we kind of uh, lucked out to be in the right the right time to, to take advantage of online marketing. So you, you were able to build that brand for, I mean, I'm curious what you think that number would be like two cents on the dollar today. If somebody tried to reach all those same people that you did. Yeah, definitely. Like it, it, it'd be astronomical. It'd be, it would be very, very difficult to, to, to do that today. Truthfully, because, because online marketing has become very, very expensive. That is crazy. So now with, with Arena Club, how are you thinking about marketing differently, um, you know, in, in today's day and age and for this, uh, you know, audience? Yeah, I mean, look, it, 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 there's still room for online advertising, which we're doing a little bit of, um, but there's, a, a, of course, a whole world of other types of marketing that we could use. We're working with a lot of influencers as well and people in the hobby. Uh, going to a lot of card shows and having presence at these card shows and just kind of building that base that way, you know, reaching out to, to heavy collectors to have them try out Arena Club and that's working. We're, we're, we're partnered up with a lot of card shops around the country now uh, who have showrooms at Arena Club. And so that's been a lot of fun working with them. Um, yeah, so there's just a bunch of different avenues that, that we're taking. And, and you guys are doing the most powerful one too, which is the, the word of mouth. When you do, when you do yeah. a good job, things happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot of folks talking about arena club, which is fantastic. Do you have a, do you have a favorite uh, card in your, in your showroom or a favorite <laughs> on the whole platform? You know, I, I, I have a lot of cards I love, uh, in my showroom. Um, I have, I have, I think, a uh, uh, this is very personal to me, but it, 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 I have a, a, a shelf on my showroom called Asian Icons. And basically I collect every Asian sports hero uh, that I remember or recall or read about and so forth. And so I've got some amazing, you know, athletes 
who are in that Asian icon category. Like I have this who's, beautiful. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest have, athlete to come out of? Oh, Asia? I don't know about that. There's so many. It's hard to say, honestly. <laughs> it's like, you know, like I, it's, it's hard to say Yao Ming isn't on that list. He is, of course. And, um, but I go historic as well. So it's kind of hard to find, but like I found a really nice Norman Kwan uh, card. And it's in my showroom. Norby Kwan was the very first um, uh, professional football player as an Asian. His cool. rookie year was 1958. Wow. So this is really, really early, right? When when there weren't even that many Asians in America. It's like, so for him to turn pro in 1958 is quite amazing. And there were and no so pads in football either. <laughs> yeah, there were no pads. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, I have Sammy Lee, the, the Korean American diver who won the Olympics, a gold medal. It's like, so I, I've got a lot of, I like, got a lot of cards uh, in that Asian icon category, and I'm very proud of it. That's very cool. I had, um, I had Tracy McGrady on the podcast a little while back, and he told me the craziest Yao Ming fact that I will never forget. It was mm. that there was a regular season game between the Rockets and the Bucks. Yao was playing, and Yi, uh, I, I don't remember how to pronounce his last name, who was the new draft pick for the Bucks, uh, uh -huh. they were playing against each other. And that single regular season game had more than a billion viewers. It had more than 10 times the audience of the Super Bowl at the time. Because the two, because all of China and Asia was tuned into this regular season matchup between Yao and Yi. And it was the craziest thing. And Tracy McGrady couldn't believe it. It was just wow. the biggest fanfare, biggest NBA regular season game in history. Not even close. That is crazy. What a cool story. And crazy, it makes right? so much sense. It makes so much sense. I mean, they're basketball crazy in China. Literally, they're basketball and, crazy. And that draft pick, Yi, who obviously didn't pan out, People were expecting mm. him to be the next Yao. So it was like I know, yeah. Yao versus New Yao. So yeah, yeah. it would have been even yeah. crazier if one panned out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Uh, he, he had skills too. It was unfortunate to uh, to see him not make it. Yeah, there, there there's going to be another. Uh, I mean, obviously, oh, there sure. uh, there's there will eventually be another star of Yao's level in the NBA. Oh, for sure. There has to be. That and uh, you know the biggest market that NBA is hoping a superstar comes from is India, because if the NBA oh, can yeah. to the Indian fan base, which you know contributes uh, over a billion cricket fans, if they if, if some of those fans become NBA fans, then you know, that'll just further expedite the growth. I, I want to ask you about uh, collectibles internationally because people in the last couple of years have been making a big uh, you know fuss about soccer cards mm -hmm. and how. Mm -hmm. Football cards, you know, uh, European uh, football, and how they think that everything is incredibly undervalued because there's so many more fans worldwide. But it doesn't seem like cards have penetrated those countries and you know global uh, audiences yet. What what do you think about that, and how do you think something like that could happen in countries like? Obviously, it's a little bit in, in China, but not very much in Europe and not very much in India, obviously. Yeah. And so I, I think it's a gigantic, gigantic opportunity, of course. And you're starting to see it grow. So I know that there's a big show happening right now in Macau, uh, down near the Hong Kong area. I'm not sure if you're following that, but a lot of friends I know are out there 
saying how big it's gotten, right? And so this is a kind of a, I think it's a once a year show, maybe it's twice a year, but it looks like it's really growing. I, I know that there's a, a show in South Korea that's growing uh, in the cards, in the card category, sports card category. Um, and it really depends on the countries, right? So China, they're heavier in collecting basketball cards. Europe, they're heavier in collecting soccer and F1. So it, it kind of makes sense to whichever sport is you know, the most popular. But truly, I'm, I'm really hoping fanatics who own Hobbs now uh, will crack that code. Because I, I think that the hobby should be much bigger than it is today because it's mostly U.S. But fanatics is a very global business. They have the resources to make it happen. So I'm really hoping that they're successful in bringing this hobby to international, whether it be Europe or Asia and so forth. Uh, but yeah, I think in terms of, you know, the growth, it's happening, right? These shows are happening. There are more card shops. I was in, I, I, I went at the Nationals. I met the, the largest card shop owners in Germany, uh, these two brothers, and they have an amazing collection too of basketball cards. And um, yeah, it, it's just, so you're, you're, you're starting to see it. It's just the earliest, early stages right now. But look, the, the thing about collecting Collecting itself is universal, right? It's universal. All you have to do is look at coins and that market to understand collecting is universal, right? Yeah. The coin market in Europe and Asia are just as big as it is in America. But that took time. It, I mean, coins have been around since, you know, the turn of, uh, since the beginning. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, ta it takes time. But in terms of collecting cards, it makes sense. It makes sense for a lot of people. They understand, you know, scarcity, right? The value of scarcity. And the value of collecting something that's vintage or the value of collecting a one of one that is valuable right so that that that's just universal and so in terms of getting folks to follow this hobby in terms of cards i think it just takes a little bit of push and marketing and so forth to keep growing the categories totally two, two interesting points you know obviously coins have the benefit of having you know four thousand or so years of yeah uh, exactly of items whereas sports cards only have you know 120 140 max years to dating back to like the very first cards and you know those older ones the first 70 years there's not very much of um for the top tier items like when we're talking about onus wagner t206 52 mantle uh you know the, the iconic yeah. the babe roots card yeah. you know all of his iconic cards even you know, like say Jordans and and you know high high tier LeBrons. Do you think there's a world where those are appreciated in a you know similar fashion to high end artwork? Oh, hundred percent, absolutely. Um, I think I think in time those will can be considered a bargain. I, I truly believe that. I truly what, believe that, especially for true scarcity, huh? What what specifically do you think will be a bargain like like uh, you know depending on rarity or depending on player? I think it, all depends, I think it depends on rarity, um, and and to a certain point the the player of course, but rarity is is, is really everything, right? It's scarcity, right? If I'm holding the very best Mickey fifty two mantle ever ever graded, according to what SGC said, right? Then there's a lot of value in that. Right, because like there'll always be collectors, and there'll always be collectors who are richer than you, who are willing to pay more than you, 
Yeah. Right. And so that's, that's the thing. It's like over time, it'll lead to more and more value. More folks are entering the hobby, more people are collecting and the prices will continue to go up. You know, if the quantity of billionaire collectors goes up, then the value of the Honus Wagner goes up. There's just That's no, correct. there's no other, other way about it because every, if I had, you know, a billion dollars, I would have to own a Honus Wagner. There would just be no, yeah. there's nothing else that I could buy that I think is as good of an investment <laughs> or makes me happy than that. If I had yeah, that, absolutely. that inconsequential to the bank <laughs> because they're, <laughs> They've gotten expensive. Even the last five years, what are they up? Like 500% or so? Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. So last, yeah. last question for you. What, what gets you the most excited these days? Out of everything you've got going on, what gets you fired up the most? Honestly, it's a team here. I, I, I love the people I work with. And every morning, I'm happy. I come into work. I come into this office. And it's like, it's go time. And on, that's what I'm most excited about is that everyone here is working extremely hard to deliver, to deliver as much value as possible to this hobby, right? And it's, it's fantastic. It's like a, a real great atmosphere here. Um, everyone's just kind of gathered around and, you know, coming up with ideas and, and so forth. So it's, it's just, it's just a lot of fun. That's so great. Well, I'm so happy for you. I'm happy to be involved a little bit and, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't say a, a shout out to, to the Bleaker team, Jess and Mark. <laughs> Thanks for putting everything together. Love you guys. Thank you, Buster, for having me. Um, would love to come back someday. Awesome. All right, everybody. See you next time. Peace. Cool. Thank you. Bye.